This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Ecolab, whose Water for Climate program is transforming the way the world thinks about water. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Atmospheric scientist, Dr. Katherine Hayhoe, and marine biologist, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This summer, as we were just seeing, has been marked by extreme heat, fires, floods, storms across the globe, and it obviously seems like an inflection point to many. Uh, Dr. Johnson, to start with you, do we know how much of the summer's heat is driven by climate change versus El Nino conditions in the Pacific? And can you help us understand this moment, especially as we are at a, a critical point? I kind of want to turn to you for that question. (laughs) I mean, the thing that I think is most striking when we think about the relationship of the ocean and climate is more than 90% of the excess heat um, that's been trapped by greenhouse gases has been absorbed by the ocean. So the ocean is actually a hero when we think about Mm -hmm. our climate situation, because without that, we'd be dozens of degrees Mm -hmm. warmer in the atmosphere. And also absorbing all this carbon dioxide is changing the chemistry of seawater. It just boggles my mind that the pH of the entire ocean has shifted because of all this combusting of fossil fuels. So I'm not exactly sure what percentage of this summer's exciting weather we can um, blame on El Nino versus climate change. Do you know? The larger part. So in the area, that's why it's that, to always have two That much I knew, but I was like, do we have a exactly. for, for specific yeah. events, we absolutely do. In fact, that's at the cutting yeah. edge of science these days, mm-hmm. is we can put a number now on just how much more likely or worse climate change made a certain event. This is the attribution science. Yes. Yeah. And it's very powerful because let me give you an example from Hurricane Harvey. To this date, the most expensive disaster in the United States. We know that, that almost 40% of the rain that fell during Hurricane Harvey would not have fallen if it wasn't for climate change supersizing the hurricane, primarily through ocean heat. Mm-hmm. But then we know that the actual damages, three quarters of the damages, were because of that supersizing of the hurricane. So we can add to it, and they've extended that to looking at wildfire. 37% of the area burned by wildfire in the last 40 years was because of 88 companies. Again, the CEOs and the buses. Um, (laughs) And that is really powerful connector. There was a new study, actually, that just even came out looking at the area of ice loss and the number of polar bears endangered. They can track that back to that company endangered, this number of polar bears. So you can put numbers on exactly how much worse we are making things, and the answer is typically a lot. Got it. Excellent. Um, Or, well, excellent answer. Let me modify that (laughs) for fear of it being misinterpreted. (laughs) Doctor, as the world contended with all these extreme weather events, at the Mm -hmm. same time, we've seen a tremendous expansion of clean energy here in the United States. And how should we understand these competing ideas and kind of the implications for both of these trends, which appear to be happening, frankly, faster than we had anticipated on both fronts. They are. So I truly believe that we are reaching not one, but two positive tipping points. Now, as a climate scientist, you normally hear the phrase tipping points in the sense of the climate is going to reach a tipping point. And there are physical tipping points in the climate system that would put us past a point of no return for that part of the system. But I'm talking about tipping points in our human society. And the first tipping point I think that we're rapidly approaching is the tipping point of getting rid of psychological distance. For a long time, people see climate change as it's a future issue, not now, or it's over there, but not here. 
And now people realize it is now, it is here, it is affecting the people, places, things I love. And we have reached the point where the balance of people in the US and around the world are worried about climate change. And that is a great first step, but it's only the first step. The second step is we have to figure out what to do about it because you could have the whole world worried, but if we don't know what to do, we do nothing. So there, the trends that we are seeing in clean energy are incredibly encouraging because you're right, they are happening exponentially. I live in Texas, which is the number one producer of wind in the country. When I moved there 15 years ago, they weren't even on the charts for solar. And this year they overtook California as the number one solar producer too. I feel like if things can change in Texas, they can change anywhere. <laughs> now, a question about what we've seen with this clean energy expansion, both domestic and globally, is to what extent, and this would really be for both of you, are we seeing an energy transition or an energy addition? In other words, mm -hmm. you know, how much are we truly seeing the kind of decarbonization that, for example, you were talking about in the beginning? I think a lot of that depends on sort of how Inflation Reduction Act is implemented, right? There are all these tax credits in there for, for homeowners. There's all this encouragement for, um, you know, local manufacturing of heat pumps and, um, you know, electric cars and all of this. So I think a lot of that, we don't exactly know how that's going to play out in the next few years, but what we are seeing so far is that it is changing things faster than we had anticipated. So many companies are taking advantage of this. So many homeowners are, you know, switching to induction stoves, putting in heat pumps, getting solar panels on the roofs because the tax credits are just change the equation for what people can afford. Now, there are a lot of ways in which, you know, those tax credits don't really work for people who don't have a tax burden, who are too poor to pay up front. Um, so there's certainly some, like, very significant justice issues in how um, that will be implemented that we really have to keep our eye on and, and think about how how to thread that needle much, much better. Um, but I'm actually really excited about a lot of the trends that we're starting to see around there in ways that I just didn't think domestic manufacturing would ramp up as quickly as it has to sort of keep up with this need. I mean, people are having trouble getting the installers. So I, one of the things that I'm really excited about is thinking about the, uh, the opportunity for just a whole new generation of people who can do green jobs in this country and, and, and really eager to see what the Biden administration might do to support that. I mean, a lot of the um, promises when Biden and others were running for election was, what about a civilian climate corps? This idea that was popularized by Jay Inslee and carried on by Elizabeth Warren before Biden picked it up. And I think that's something that could be a huge benefit um, to this nation if we're thinking about like how to really invest in um, making sure people are ready for this transition. We just like don't have enough electricians and solar installers and green building retrofitters. I mean, it's so important to remember we have hundreds of millions of buildings in this country that need to be transitioned um, to renewables. And that's just like a big physical task. Okay, we're now going to discuss an, uh, an issue that matters, I know, to both of us, Dr. Johnson, which is that the ocean covers, you know, about 70% of the Earth's surface, yet it's often missing from mm -hmm. conversations about climate change. Why do you think that is? And, and, and if you had to convey why the ocean should be more central to the climate mm -hmm. conversation, how would you do that? The ocean is a huge part of our climate system. I mean, when we think about the way that heat moves around the planet, a lot of it is in the ocean. A lot of it is absorbed by the ocean. Major ocean currents are moving heat around the planet. If we think about um, you know, why Europe isn't frozen, um, I think 
a lot of the times we think about the ocean as a source of the climate problem or the risk or threats. We think about sea level rise. We maybe think about hurricanes. Maybe we understand that they are strengthened as the waters are warming, making them you know, stronger and wetter, more dangerous. Um, but I don't think people think enough about the ocean as a source of climate solutions. So if we think about um, how all these things add up, we think about coastal ecosystems that are absorbing all this carbon and buffering us from the impact of storms, all of those wetlands, mangroves, um, seagrasses, coral reefs, those are really important natural protection from storm surge and hurricanes. Um, we think about offshore renewable energy right now, primarily that's wind, but there's potential for a lot of other different varieties of that. Um, we can also think about regenerative farming in the ocean of seaweeds mm -hmm. and shellfish as a really low impact form of um, supporting domestic food security. And so if we add all that up and figuring out cleaning up shipping and ports, this is like 20% of our climate solution that could mm -hmm. be coming from the ocean. And so when I look at a lot of climate policy and I don't see the ocean included in there, I'm like, well, this is an incomplete solution if we're not including the ocean. So I feel like a lot of what I do is just raise my hand in every climate <laughs> yeah. conversation. I'm like, also the ocean. Yeah, exactly. We can't actually do this if we leave the ocean out of the equation. Yeah. Have you ever thought of just getting like a whole outfit that just says, I am the ocean? <laughs> just sitting there pointing to it. <laughs> it's a lot of responsibility to like be the ocean. Exactly. But I, I it think just you can it off. <laughs> um, and Dr. Hayhoe, could you talk a little about feedbacks in the carbon cycle and why they matter and what we need to know about them, particularly at this moment? Mm -hmm. Well, feedbacks in the climate system as a whole, yeah. um, we have as far back as we can go in the history of this planet, and paleoclimate science goes back hundreds, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, we have never pushed the planet this far, this fast. The closest analog to what's happening today was 55 million years ago, when clearly we did not have 8 billion people on the planet and $50 trillion worth of infrastructure. And at that point, according to our best estimates, the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere on an annual basis back at the time of extremely rapid warming, the fastest we've ever seen, was a tenth of what we're putting into the atmosphere today. So this is an unprecedented experiment we're conducting with the only home we have. And when people say, well, what do we have to do to save the planet? I'm like, the planet is going to be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. What do we have to do to save us? And by us, I mean us humans and all the living things that share this planet with us. Because when we go back in the past, times of rapid change have been characterized by a word, and that word is extinctions. Um, <laughs> would be great to avoid that this time around. I yes. think the good news is like we really do have most of the solutions we need. There's a lot of talk about like the need for technological innovation to address this crisis, but like we really mm -hmm. do have the solutions we need. We have renewable energy, we know how to ship, we know how to develop public transit, we know about re regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. we know about how to retrofit buildings. Like we just we know not only what to do but how to do it and it really is a matter of like how quickly and building the political will mm -hmm. and making sure people are trained to actually do the the physical changes that need to happen. And just, I think this last summer, mm -hmm. um, as Catherine was describing, has like really helped us with this social tipping point mm -hmm. of like people are awake. Mm -hmm. Like the sky in New York was orange yes. because of wildfires in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Like we had a hurricane just head to Maine. We had a hurricane mm -hmm. just head yeah. towards LA. People are seeing that this is here and now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe it's not so much a sense of urgency that's changed, but a sense of like, 
practicality. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we, we have to actually mm -hmm. deal with this and there are steps that we can take. And I love, I, that's, that's the mindset I want everyone to be in that like solution oriented, mm -hmm. okay, who's doing what, like, let's go. Okay, what's a solution like that Dr. Johnson hasn't named that you would mm. say that you think is a critical piece you, of the- Oh, could we just go back and forth on our <laughs> yeah. favorite climate solution? <laughs> just a little, then we're gonna get back into some of the depressing topics, but I feel like you're gonna run with, we're gonna run with this. You read it, my mind because uh -huh. that was literally what was going through my mind as you were what talking. Else? What okay. Else? okay, so when people say mitigation, yeah, they jump to clean energy okay. but the cheapest form of energy is what the energy you don't, don't use so efficiency in our energy use and our food use we waste 67 percent of the energy we produce and half the food mm -hmm. there are people going hungry and there's food rotting producing greenhouse gases because we are wasting it so just recognizing that everything has value mm -hmm. we are just such a wasteful society and everybody can get on board with what our grandparents taught us right waste not want not a pinch in, you know, a, a, an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. Stitch in time saved nine. There's all these adages for it. <laughs> so that's one. And then the mm -hmm. other one is one you alluded to, but I want to call it directly, which is nice. nature. Mm -hmm. So at the Nature Conservancy, our scientists have calculated that putting carbon, you asked about the carbon cycle, putting carbon back in nature where we want it instead of up in the atmosphere where we have too much of it, because carbon is not bad. We are carbon-based life forms. It's in the wrong place, yes. Yeah. So moving it around using nature is an incredible climate solution that could account for up to a third of the carbon that we produce every year. But it isn't just about putting the carbon back into soils and ecosystems and fields. It is also, like you said, about restoring coastal wetlands to protect us from storm surge. It's about restoring ecosystems to support biodiversity. It's about climate-smart agriculture that is also more climate-resilient as well as putting carbon back in the soil. There are these win-win-win solutions. And when you really look at all the benefits of some of these solutions for health, for the economy, for rural livelihoods, for quality, oh, and for climate too, it's the icing on the cake. The only question I have is why not? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to preface it with a shameless plug for an amazing series that the Washington Post's climate team is doing this year called Unearthing the F Future, which is about paleoclimate. Uh -huh. But we don't say that because if you say okay. paleoclimate science, many people might not read it. But instead, <laughs> it's a super exciting series uh, that some of our journalists have done where they've gone to Crawford Lake and looked oh, at yes. you know all the impact that humanity mm -hmm. has had since the beginning. They traveled to the Greenland Ice Sheet with scientists from uh, Lamont observatory at Columbia to you know to drill to the bedrock and what is so fascinating about it is obviously it's kind of asking questions of the rocks and telling us you know having them tell us what the future is and I was wondering Dr. Hayo if you could talk about both what you feel like the climate models say with certainty and what's a big unanswered question that we have that right now we're really struggling to you know sort out so we can chart our future. I can so first of all People are often asking me these days as a climate scientist, are things changing faster than we expected? And the answer to that is actually, when we look at global average temperature, no. Where we are today is exactly where scientists predicted we would be 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Global average temperature is right on track. We really did warn you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when she says we, we're going back like yeah. 150 years, like well yeah. before our births. Yes. Yeah. But in terms of extremes, we have always known that we're underestimating the extremes because it's out of the tail of the distribution and things are happening that we haven't even seen before. So we always knew that we were underestimating the extremes and we're seeing that in real time today in terms of, you know, with, with the terrible floods they had in Libya, there were seven other terrible floods around the world the same week. 
With the heat extremes, we had terrible heat extremes here, but they had massive heat waves during winter in South America at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that is where our projections have not really reached the full extent of what we're already seeing. But if you ask me what the greatest uncertainties are, there's two of them. One of them is what I alluded to before, that we've never seen things changing this fast. We've never pushed the planet this fast. And so there are feedbacks in the climate system, vicious cycles, where if we heat the planet, the Arctic starts to thaw. Mm -hmm. If the Arctic starts to thaw, all the organic material that's frozen in the ground there starts to decompose. As it decomposes, what does it produce? It produces heat-trapping gases, more of them. Mm -hmm. So the, the question of how is the planet going to respond to this massive kick we're giving it that is bigger than anything we can ever see is a very concerning question to climate scientists that does keep us up at night. But the second question, what's going to happen in the future? The answer to that has a lot more to do with us than it does with the planet. We're the ones driving this change, and the choices we make today and in the near future will literally set the course for our future. And, and so the ones we make today yes. are even more important than the ones we make tomorrow because yeah. like, it will be a very different world in five years if we don't do everything we're supposed to do this year um, and are sort of like, if, if you're thinking, do I take a two-year sabbatical from climate action now or do I take a two-year sabbatical in 10 years? Like, please take it later because the work that you do now um, will be much more transformational. I mean, take naps and whatever, but like... And, there you go. and breaks. Keep uh, it going. Yes. And actually, in the context of what you just said, you know, obviously in the internet and in the global climate debate, we often talk about like targets and timetables and, you know, and one of the questions is, is that the right way to communicate climate change and or is there a different language we should be using or is that the most relevant given yeah. the time the, you know the time sensitivity you just talked it's about it's so interesting because i feel like well one i think there's no one right way to communicate about climate. Some people will, you know, different messages will dif resonate with different audiences. So I think the more climate communication we have, almost the better. So great that, you know, you've been doing this work pro in a very deep way for a long time, but now, you know, every paper that of, of, you know, of note has a significant climate team, which is wonderful. And I think this sort of like timelines, deadlines, we all kind of like can relate to a deadline of like a homework assignment, right? Like this is a group project that we are failing like as the kid who like did all of the work for every group project I have like a specific sort of anxiety yeah. that's like yeah. oh it's yeah. on me again you know um, and so I think um, I kind of expected the the, the United Nations uh, IPCC report on like 1.5 degrees mm -hmm. of warming um, Celsius and what that would mean um, in reality I kind of thought like no one would get excited by that, but that became a rallying cry. Like we have this deadline for when we have to like dramatically reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. And suddenly people are like, oh, there's a deadline and there's a percent reduction and we need to get behind this. And I just never thought I'd hear people chanting like 1.5 to stay alive or we have 12 years, you know? Yeah. Um, so. I guess I'm not very good at predicting what will become chance at climate marches right. and how that will relate to scientific publications. So um, it kind of depends, I guess. I, I think you're right. I mean, as humans, we need deadlines. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, what do you do if you want to accomplish something? You set a goal, right? And then you figure out how to accomplish that goal. That's the way we work. But the challenge is, is that one and a half degrees is not a magic number. 
In other words, if we end up at 1.4999, it doesn't mean that we're fine. And if we end up at 1.5111, it doesn't mean it's all over. And so the danger I see, and I know that you see this too, is that people are, are investing too much in that. And what if we don't make one and a half? Well, you know what? That is a heck of a lot better than two. What if we actually make two? Well, you know what? We were headed for five 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then two is a lot better than five. And so the concern is that if we invest overly in these deadlines and we don't make them, then people are like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. And what that one and a half degree report from the IPCC actually concluded is very powerful. The conclusion of the whole report comparing what a world would look like if we reached one and a half, if we reached two, or if we did nothing was this. Every bit of warming matters. Mm -hmm. Every action matters. Every choice matters. That was the conclusion of the science. Well, this has been an illuminating conversation, which has had more laughter than I would have predicted <laughs> for a, a serious climate science discussion. Yes. So thank you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you, Coming Dr. Come hang out with us. We're this. not awful. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, up next, we will hear from my colleague, Francis Stead Sellers. Welcome, I'm Frances Dee Sellers. I'm a senior writer at the Washington Post, and I'm now delighted to welcome Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and now the chair of the Elders, a program we'll hear about a little bit, and Aisha Siddiqui, who is a youth climate activist and the youth climate advisor to the UN Secretary General. So welcome to you both. I start asking me a little bit like a third wheel because you came here together, <laughs> you've been working together, and you have a new initiative together. And Aisha, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what I think is called Planetary Guardians. Sure. Um, I can start, and then I'd ask Mary to fill in the blanks because I think she probably has a better understanding than even I do. So the Planetary Guardians is an initiative formed to promote the planetary boundaries. Uh, these boundaries are scientific-based targets that uh, have been being worked towards for the past 15 years. And uh, these boundaries are split into seven different categories. One is around climate change, another is just uh, gas emissions, another is biodiversity. And the essential idea is that these boundaries must be maintained so we don't cross the threshold of the tipping points. And the really wonderful uh, part of the boundaries is that once we exceed these boundaries, there still are mechanisms to go back and prevent the, the uh, unchangeable, um, which are the tipping points. And the Planetary Guardians is an, is an uh, effort to merge the science with the leaders who are working with civil society, with um, their constituencies, and really make sure that uh, the, what is said in the science also reaches a far, far um, wider audience. So Mary, do pick up on that if you can. You're also involved in leading the elders at the moment. And how does this new group learn from a group like the elders? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that works. So we are in, you know, a worrying stage with six of the planetary boundaries that keep our world in balance. And what I like about the planetary boundaries approach is um, it's an explanation for people of why we're seeing these terrible floods, like mm. in Pakistan and in Libya, right. um, why we're seeing wildfires all over the world. And I've been aware, because I work on climate justice, as you heard, um, that, of course, 
that affected the poorest countries first right. and foremost, and they were not responsible. And but now it's affecting everyone, and people don't understand. And the Arctic is is worrying, and the yeah. Antarctic is worrying. And you know, we're hit, we're being hit by this every day. What's happening? This explains the interconnectedness, right. and it means that we have to see ourselves as nature, not separate from nature. We are nature. We are part of nature. We're part of nature, and we've been yeah. losing our. Yeah. And Humility is part of that. Exactly. And, and the Guardian, uh, the um, elders have been working on the climate and nature crisis. Mm. We also work on the pandemics crisis and the right. nuclear weapons crisis. So much but, in common. Yeah. And we, we have a lot in common. And actually, I have a fellow elder as um, a Guardian, Juan Manuel Santos. Mm. And he tells a wonderful story about uh, his link with his indigenous peoples in his country when he became president and learning from their wisdom. And we have several indigenous uh, members of our of our group, and uh, I, I feel it, it, it's really going to be a wonderful tool that has already been used by some countries. Right. Um, the first country to decide on using the planetary boundaries was New Zealand, under Jacinda Ardern. Takes Another a woman leader. Woman leader. Right. There we leader. go. And then, and then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And then Finland and Sweden and the Netherlands. Right. And um, actually. I was very pleased. I'm, I'm involved as chair of the elders in a working group on Ukraine, mm. looking at the terrible extent of the environmental damage, including the dam that was mm. exploded, right. um, the accountability for it, which of course is Russia, Putin, mm. and also how to build back green. You see the terrible destruction of this war. How to build how back to green. How to take back. And, and we're going to use okay. the planetary boundaries framework um, as a starting point. So, Aisha, you're. 24, I hope you don't mind me telling everybody here that. But, but you, we, you need we, to mention my age. Don't <laughs> <laughs> leave that or we'll, we'll whisper it. <laughs> um, and now that we've said it, everybody's going to know it 40 years from now. <laughs> we've been talking about worry. Hmm. Your generation has had to embrace a sense of worry that I don't think either of us had hmm. when we were 24. Hmm. Can you talk about that and what it means? Hmm. Um, how, I, how I describe this worry is um, how many people in the room have experienced anxiety that they cannot explain or depression that they cannot yeah, explain? Around the room. Yeah. Um, what modern day physics classifies as matter that cannot, uh, matter as energy cannot be uh, destroyed or uh, created is what we're feeling. And the analysis I have for that is, um, as a species, we are destroying nature at such a mass speed. And we are harming nature at such a mass speed. This nature is matter, it has energy. And these random waves of anxiety is what we feel when a mother whale loses her child and she's calling out for help. Um, this anxiety that our children are experiencing, that the younger generation is experiencing, is because children are closer to the beginning of life. They're able to have a wisdom that allows them to connect to what is happening in the world around us. And that is why it is so nerve-wracking, but that is why they're also petitioning for a truth. It is. Um, it is so bluntly obvious there isn't any other solution. So Mary, we hear those 
very, very powerful mm. words. In the time that you've been involved, and we saw the hand up over there cheering for women, women's leadership has changed dramatically. What do you think it means for addressing the kinds of vulnerabilities that, uh, with mothers and small mm. children mm. that Aisha is talking mm. about? It's a very interesting question, and I'm very aware of the anxieties and the pressures on young leaders like Aisha. Mm -hmm. I was with Natasha Nakate at breakfast mm -hmm. this morning with women leaders, mm -hmm. and she spoke about you know, her you know, trying to create awareness, but also trying to put um, solar panels and clean cooking into schools in Uganda. No real support. Right. You know, and if you, you know, if you want to make it an application, the, the paperwork you have to go through, and you know, it was it was really, mm. uh, you know, very moving to, to listen to her. Um, women leaders need to step up now as never before. And the interesting thing is, do you uh, think they're not? Um, they are, well, they, they have to st st um, s step up on climate, right. the okay. climate and nature crisis. What is, what and an what we're finding is that um, there are very many women leaders who do extraordinary work right. on health issues, on violence against women, on girls' education, right. on Me Too issues, yeah. all of that. But say, um, climate is not my thing. Mm. Actually, nobody can say that now. We're guardians of planetary boundaries. Climate is everyone's thing. We all actually need to become guardians and feel that connection with nature. And you know, absolutely all of us. And women leaders um, lead in a different way which mm. the world needs. Mm. I'm, I'm very in favor, it's not excluding men, it's having that balance. Um, uh, you know, if you have um, a balanced cabinet, it's better for the country, it's better right. for the um, climate policies in that country, it's better for girls' education, everything. Um, so. Um, uh, what we need now is much more evidence of women um, understanding that we are in a crisis. As, as Greta Thunberg put it so well, our house is burning. So women need to stay. We in. have an audience here who agrees we're in a crisis, mm. but not everybody does, mm. Aisha. And you have to convey a message. How do you avoid being dismissed as? you know, the younger generation that gets caught up in, you know, protests and movements mm. and is shrill and will kind of grow out of this? Um, it's the nature of the crisis. It, we're not going to grow out of it. It's just going to get worse. And we're going to get more activated. But what we're leaving uh, younger generations with is even more work. Um, but on your point of uh, there's people in the room who who agree, but then there's a uh, very large constituency that doesn't. And I think uh, to answer that question, we need to see wins. So in the United States, the Dakota Access Pipeline was shut down by conservative white ranchers and indigenous people who worked together because they understood that clean water and clean air and land is everybody's fundamental human right. And my, you know, when, when speaking to someone who doesn't agree with me, it's, it's as simple as this. If your tap water tomorrow started coming out dirty, and if you went to the grocery store and you did not have food, you would fight the people making your water dirty and taking your food as well. It's not just indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Our direct access to water is through our rivers. Mm -hmm. Is our direct access to our food is through our soil. 
That is why we can immediately see it. That's why we immediately are fighting for its protection. But in a developed country like this, and we saw it during the COVID pandemic, when people ran out of toilet paper, like there were protests and like movement around it. Um, but it's you know it, the 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 part about uh, a doomism culture mm-hmm. and the part about how uh, young people have this negative mindset or, or is insinuated that we have a negative mindset. Um, doomism comes for from a place of feeling like there is no way out. Mm. And when when someone like me is called a leader, it's quite it's quite. Uh, destabilizing because for a long time I felt like myself and my peers were hand in hand walking in a dark cave with lanterns in our hand but there was no light in front there's nothing to see and we have to carry that light and 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 hope for the rest but wouldn't it be so beautiful if we could pass it along and so that future generations that are to come they have, a, the light. they have a light to, have a light. to go towards. <laughs> Whoops. Don't cry. We have to take care. Okay. <laughs> that was Let's very dramatic. And I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I Sorry. made my point. Happily. <laughs> 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 incredibly powerful message about you know finding the light seeing the light at yeah. the end of that tunnel which works better do they need to work together how do you see those two things um, potentially working together to reach the light that Alicia's talking about well the, the interesting thing is we are on the cusp of a clean energy healthier safer mm. climate world we're on the cusp of it mm. but we're moving too slowly and the science planetary boundaries are hurting and they're hurting seriously and we need to move with much more urgency we need a sense of crisis and uh, you might notice that we're both wearing dandelions I loved your dandelions you told me just tell quickly a little about a very important number of women leaders called connected women leaders have started to use the dandelion as a feminist icon symbol earth shot symbol of urgency for a climate justice broad movement to connect mm. all the work that's being done by young people, by indigenous communities, mm. by progressive business, etc. But we also want to reach those women who don't prioritize climate. That climate mm. is not my thing. Mm. Climate is everybody's thing now, as I've been saying. So um, <clears throat> we, we feel the reason that the dandelion is such a wonderful symbol is it grows on all seven continents. It's very resilient. You can't get rid of the damn thing if you want to. Um, <laughs> it's very regenerative. It's got long roots. Um, you can eat every part of it or drink every part of it. You can have it in teas and in wine. Oh. And, there. Um, uh, and even the roots take toxins out of the human body. So uh, how do you spread it? It's a light touch connector. See, if we, um, the, the reason we're not moving quick enough is, right. is twofold. One. It's the enormous communications on the dark side, as I call it, the fossil fuel side. Uh, Four billion a year, muddying the science, prolonging fossil fuel indefinitely to fight poverty, all this kind of stuff, and paying lip service to clean energy, but not actually really investing. Um, So 
we need to switch out of what's harming us into that clean energy. But d democracies find it difficult, and that's a point, a vital point I want to make because right. I know it. I know, for example, my own country, Ireland, right. um, we have good climate policy. We have a target of reducing by 51% our emissions by 2030. Despite lots of effort, we're only on course for 29% reduction, but we're doing a lot better than the United States. Um, <laughs> the Inflation Reduction Act is incentivizing clean energy. That's very good, but it's one out of three. You are not cutting your emissions here in the United States. Um, you are actually extending, right. and, sec and secondly, you're not giving the climate finance you should be to the poorest countries to help them to develop. So I have a question for Aisha about that, yes. and, and that is the kind of all or nothing approach that we yeah. hear among climate activists. Yeah. The Inflation Reduction Act yeah. wasn't all it could be, but it was mm. arguably better than nothing. How do you address that, that notion out there that, uh, and we had some but yesterday from the streets of New York, we need everything now. Yeah. How do we get there? Um, so the nuclear bomb was developed in a matter of four years. Mm. In, with, the, with the Manhattan Project, when the United States felt and, and Europe felt the urgency from Russia to develop a weapon of such mass destruction, it's possible. If we really think of this as a crisis, it's possible to get our act together. Now, I do want to mention that we do have planetary boundaries that we can recede back from, but we have six years before we reach 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I know before earlier, uh, Dr. Hayhoe was mentioning that it's not uh, about 1.5.11 or 1.499, but if we exceed far too much, a country like mine is done. Cultures are done, entire people are go extinct. And that is why it's necessary to do it both with urgency and then also understand the temporality because we are only here for a limited period of time. The, we are leaving a planet uh, that is going to be uninhabitable for generations to come after us. And the last point, I was uh, heavily involved in the march yesterday in the organizing. So was I. Yep. In the organizing of it, this is the first time that in the United States citizens came together and said it's the end of fossil fuels. Before ten years ago, policymakers were afraid to even say the word. You know, the Paris Climate Agreement, and I know um, President Robinson was there for for a lot of the developments of these things. They don't even have the words oil, mm -hmm. gas, yeah. or fossil fuel mm -hmm. in international policy. Mm -hmm. So to, to, to really solve this crisis, we need to be honest. And at the policy level, we're not being honest. So the political level also, there's huge partisanship around this mm. topic, particularly in this country. Is yeah. there anywhere else like it in the world, Mary, where... I don't know, think there's any other country where um, the divide is so bad. And right. it's kind of really um, uh, getting worse uh, right. because it's, uh, it's becoming tied in with other political divides. Um, you know, um, it, it's worrying to see um, you know, what, what is happening um, in uh, what should be bringing us together. And that's why, in many ways, um, uh, I think we can look to women leaders. I mean, Catherine Hayhoe, whom I know very well, is doing great work in Texas, um, you know, um, 
talking to people um, who reaching out to groups, reaching out to groups right. who don't want to talk about climate but see but see a reality right. see the flooding see the storms see the and, right. and the cost you know we need to talk more about the cost of not paying attention to climate and especially the human cost mm. the cost in deaths the cost in disease, the cost in health, even the cost of the air pollution of fossil fuels, 7 million a year, um, dying prematurely because of that. Um, so uh, we need to, you know, the, the, the way of talking about it is, you know, factor in the externalities. Mm. Um, and uh, more than anything else, we need the kind of voice that Aisha is um, expressing here to the political leaders to get that sense of urgency. That's what we need. It's the urgency of now. And unless we can gather our strengths and um, make more visible all the efforts that are being made at local level um, to um, make communities resilient, you know, I hear all the time wonderful stories. That's all underfunded. Yeah. And we need to shift the funding mm. to pay more um, for what women and young people and particularly indigenous communities are doing to help to protect the forest, to save the land, to, you know, to make the communities resilient, etc. And um, we need to bring that voice of urgency to democratic leaders to take the hard decisions now. Um, there are actually some of them going backwards. The G20 was weaker this year than last year. The stock take about the conference on climate showed that although all countries are supposed to make their efforts under their nationally determined contributions, none of them have made enough effort, and the most responsible are the worst almost. Which brings me to a last question. We've heard from extraordinary women all afternoon, and you two also re represent leadership for your own generations. So Mary, if you have a message for the women of Aisha's generation in a sentence or two, to meet the challenges we've been talking about all day, what would it be? I'm really impressed in a lot of intergenerational conversation, which I've also had with Aisha um, this afternoon, uh, at the knowledge and the um, awareness and the social connections of young people. The problem is they're not getting the support. Um, so, um, you know, I think we need to support much more not say, oh, I'm so impressed by these young leaders. Right. Uh, words like that aren't, aren't enough. Um, it's actual support that's needed. What do you need? The same question, but what do you need from Mary's generation that can help you forge ahead in this huge challenge? The funding exists to solve the climate crisis. The resources exist to solve the climate crisis. And from Mary, as an individual, I, I am not the arbitrator on this, but she is fulfilling her responsibility. It's not, and, and you know, I don't even blame my parents in particular because they did not cause the climate crisis. I come from a very rural community in Pakistan, but it's not just Mary's generation or just elder generations. The elder generations need to put pressure on businesses. Yeah and government. See, with the climate crisis, there are people causing it who have names and addresses, and we need to be brave enough to call them out. Yeah. We need to be brave enough to call them out. Thank you, Aisha Siddiqui <laughs> and Mary Robin Vinson for such powerful, powerful <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.